0: Coach, you're right down the road. We yeah. need to get together when, uh, whenever this craziness lifts. We'll go to one of those nice seafood places up near Baltimore. Oh, uh, I'd meet, be happy, I'd love there. to do that.
1: Have you ever been to the Nautilus Diner? It's a big chrome diner on Route Yeah, 5. right on 301. Yeah. Yeah, I've been there. So I'm meeting a Damascus guy there. We get there, we're talking, we're having breakfast, and I look up and I said, hey, Sugar Ray Leonard just walked in the door. <laughs> and and you're not going to believe this, but I'm going to have to excuse myself because he was a student assistant for my mother when she worked at Park Day. So, so I get up, he's, he's over there, he's in the corner, you know. So I went over, I said, hey, I hate doing this. I hate when I see people do it. When I'm out with friends that are, you know, athletes or whatever, I hate when they do it to them. But I think I got a good opening line. My mother was Mrs. Hathaway. Jumped out of the seat, hugged me, sat, sit down. We had the arms going together. Uh, it was like all at home. We and I had never met him before, but uh, he was her student assistant when uh, he went to the Olympics in Montreal. So. I don't know if we go there, we might see somebody. You know, do you know? Never know who we run into. Well, with this area, Jeff, man, this
0: is rich with with athletes from, and you know that's as well as I do. Oh, I mean, yeah. All the kids here locally, the, the DMV is so strong athletically. <sighs> you're going to bump into somebody that you know for sure.
2: Step into the mic today. You know the family, Chris Miles, Ted Jeffries, and Dino Campbell. And We'd like to invite a new member to our broadcast family, Jeff Hathaway. Jeff, I got a lot of titles to try to run down here, but we're going to go with what you're doing currently, consulting for athletic departments. Uh, explain to, to all those listening in exactly what that entails. Well,
1: you know, what I do is I go around and work with athletic departments across the country it might be helping them reorganize their structure of their athletic department. It might be talking to them about what sports do they have? Do they want to add sports? It might be helping them hire coaches or administrators. So I, I try to come in and help in any way I, I can, and uh, I enjoy it. What's fun for me is I go into that athletic department. I see what the situations are. I give them recommendations. Hopefully they take them, and then we go from there. And the plan
2: is to make them better. Okay, so you spent time as an athletic director for UConn at Hofstra as well in Colorado State. And I was sitting here trying to count how many national championships you've been a part of. My count has nine. Is that an accurate number? We got to make sure you get that number. (laughs) There we go. Nine is right. All right, Chris, that's good. It it was hard trying to go back and and figure that out. So as a consultant, seeing uh, what happened with the NCAA – for the first time in forever, there was no March Madness. But it's easy to to look now and say, "Hey, that was the right decision." But I remember that day, and to think that the NCAA was ahead of everyone else and saying, "Okay, we need to take a step back with sports and understand what's happening with society." Can you help us uh, understand one how they knew uh, that COVID nineteen was as serious as it was, and why the NCAA was the first of of all sports to say we need to make sure we cancel this.
1: Well, I think you have to look back, and uh, the NCAA actually said on a Sunday that, hey, we're go. We're, we're good to go, green light. But I think as they gathered information, the NCAA has a chief medical officer, and I think as he gathered more information, they talked to more experts, they start to see what was going on around the nation, you know, they pulled the plug. But the interesting part about it, You actually had games being played. People were warming up in Greensboro for the ACC tournament. The Big East, they were playing at Madison Square Garden. They threw the ball up to play a game, and at halftime, they went in the locker room, and they didn't come back out again. So there was a lot of unique situations going on, things that probably none of us would have ever thought were going to happen.
2: And certainly not having March Madness is number one on that list. Um, And hopefully next season, you know, everyone is healthy and we're able to have March Madness back. But speaking of that, when we see what's happening with college football, I mean, high-profile programs, LSU, Clemson, to see, I think the number's around 30 for each of those programs when you count players and coaches testing positive for COVID-19. Do you think – the college football season and possibly the college basketball season could be in jeopardy.
1: Well, I, I think the situation is when you're seeing, you know, almost a third of your football team has you know, the, the virus, you've you got to wonder about that. And you've got to wonder about how you're going to do physical distance, distancing. You know, those are the things you've got to think about, whether it's in the dormitory, whether it's in the locker room, whether it's in the dining hall. So I think there's a lot of unanswered questions right now, and I really think it's day-to-day. I talk to a lot of athletic directors on a daily basis, on a weekly basis, and, um, you know, they are not sure about how this is going to play out. You know, some Division Three schools have already announced that they're not going to play at all in the spring uh, – excuse me, the fall. Uh, the Patriot League just made a, a, an announcement that they may only play Conference games, uh, you know, everybody's wondering what to do. And um, nobody has the answer right now because nobody has a crystal ball.
0: Yeah, it's crazy. I mean, I'm dealing with a high school football team. There are more questions than answers at this point. So let me spin off into something a little bit different. Um, Obviously, nine championships under your belt. So at some point, there has to be a checklist and or criteria that you're looking at to to hire coaches when you move to these different programs. Give us a few ideas of some of the things on your checklist, just in case I need to interview one of these days coming up here soon. Who knows? Give me a few things that are going to be on your checklist when you're looking for a new coach.
1: Well, I think the first thing you need is somebody that has integrity. You know, you guys, you know, Dino, you represent Damatha. A lot of people don't see DeMatha in the building or – you know, in, in the gym or whatever, they see you at a game on a sideline or whatever the case might be, you are what is representing the Matha, Bill McGregor, you know, Mike Jones. And the people have to have integrity. So that, that's number one. I'm looking yeah. for integrity inside and out, and that's that's a non-negotiable. Then you want to I want to talk to people who have worked with these coaches. You know, What are they like? How do they coach? How do they handle the student athletes? You know, are they in tune with student athlete well-being? You know, what are their interactions? Do they have good relationships? And then at the end of the day, can they coach? Can they coach? And the other thing that I think is imperative that you just don't hear enough people talk about, Dino, and that is who are they going to bring for assistant coaches? Whether it's a basketball team, whether it's a baseball team, whether it's a football team. It's even more interesting with a football team because if you're in college, you got ten assistants, then you got the recruiting guys, then you got the operations guys, you got the quality control guys. So when I hire somebody, I want to know who are they bringing in, who do they think that they can get on their staff that's going to be a game-changer for our program.
3: Jeff, Ted Jeffrey's here. Uh, appreciate you coming on the show. Uh, now let's talk about the position of athletic director. Uh, because, you know, gone are the days where they're just hiring former head coaches on football or former head coaches of football or basketball. You really need to be a CEO, uh, of this organ of your athletic department nowadays. So talk about the transition, uh, and the hiring process to become an AD. You've got to, you know, woo the president of the, of the university, uh, you know the athletic staff you know talk about how one does make that transition to become an a d
1: well, you know in today 's world it 's all about revenue generation universities, most universities don 't have a lot of money, most athletic programs don 't have a lot of money there's three hundred and fifty four division one teams. you have people on the back end of that three hundred and fifty four who their whole budget is what The front end is paying their basketball coach or their football coach. So there's a, there's disparity in that process, but no matter what end you're on, revenue generation is vital. Fundraising, tickets, corporate sponsorship, marketing, all those things are, is what is going to fuel your athletic department. So I think right now, a lot of presidents are looking for that in athletic directors.
3: You've had a you've had tremendous success, especially at UConn, and doing exactly that, raising quite a bit of individual and corporate money. Um, talk about the process of building those relationships so that you can, you know, bring in those those big dollars.
1: Well, you know, I spent my first 11 years at UConn as the number two person. I went to Colorado for two years, Colorado State for two years, and came back to UConn, and that is when we got an invitation to go into the Big East for football. And uh, we needed to get the football program in the Big East. We needed to get some wins. We had to get some wins behind us. Uh, Getting our first bowl game was a real uh, indicator for us. Having a great quarterback and Dan Orlovsky was really good for us. Once we got that going, after a couple of years, we went out to the marketplace for a apparel deal. So we went to Nike. UConn had never had a department wide apparel deal. We went to Nike, we sat with them, we we, uh, ended up with a $46 million deal with them. Same thing, a lot of schools don't have enough staff to do marketing, to do the selling of corporate sponsorships, so they outsource that. We went to a company called IMG, We did a 10-year deal, $90 million guaranteed, plus an upside if we hit certain goals. So that was $126 million that we did within, within a year. Our football got better. Men and women's basketball were on a roll. And then we ended up leading the capital campaign at the University of Connecticut. When I left UConn, athletics had raised more money than any other aspect of the university. And when I left, we had raised $70 million in the capital campaign. So you can see from those numbers, it's all about generating revenue.
3: Coach, now let's bring it back to Prince George's County and some of your earlier years down here at college park. You happen to have some special times and some turbulent times, so to speak, when you think about, you know, having left your uh as head coach at a basketball program here, And then you also think about the the Len Bias uh, tragedy. When you think about what a great player he was, um, also, uh, you know, what he could have been. You know, recently, you know, we saw the Michael Jordan uh, piece and a lot of comparisons after the fact were, what if Lenny Bias would have, you know, uh, had not died? What would have happened then? You know, talk about your memories of Len Bias, and then also the great left-hander uh, Lefty Drizel.
1: You know, Len Len was an incredible, incredible basketball player. He had a physique; his body was chiseled. I mean, he was strong as could be. He got in the He got into the weight room after his first year, really built himself up. Um, it, it just an incredible guy who I'm not sure even knew how good he was I'm not sure that he knew he even had more and uh, the things he would do in practice the things he would do in the games uh, in the in the um, Michael Jordan uh, series you, you remember him picking off the pass and scoring uh, that they showed he, he was just fantastic uh, I always thought he was a great person who uh, Fun person to talk to, a funny person, was a great artist. uh, But it all, you know, just went bad when he died. And uh, that just was a terrible situation that's very hard to explain. And uh, the next year was just uh, probably the longest year of my life in college athletics. Um, Lenny was a good guy. Just think about the Celtics. Just think about the Celtics if he had played for the Celtics with the people that he would have had around them. So uh, all in all, my experience with Lenny was always very positive. A tragic day, uh, we're all scarred by it. And all of us that were in the basketball family at that time, uh, the, the memories are uh, deep and sad and uh, very uh, hard to talk about, quite frankly. Uh, the left-hander, There's only one of them. There's only one (laughs) of them, man. Uh, Relentless recruiter. Yes. Relentless recruiter. And I think that's what I took away most from him was his uh, resilience, uh, his ability to bounce back. If we lost a game, we'd be on the bus after the game, after we lost, and he's talking about the next game. I mean, he's dialed in, ready to go. Um, What was a heck of a coach, did not get enough credit for his coaching. You know, he was, he was a great coach. Started Midnight Madness, uh, signed probably the best player of, of that decade in Moses Malone. Uh, Moses was on campus, but never played. Uh, and if, and Lefty's a funny guy. I mean, he's a funny guy. He's a superstitious guy. You know, he's from the South on uh, new year's day. He'd bring in a bowl of uh, uh, black eyed peas and everybody had to,
0: eat,
1: you know, everybody had to eat some because that was some kind of superstition. So it's good, it's
0: good luck, Jeff.
1: Come yeah, on, yeah, it's good luck. I know, I get it, and you know. So if somebody tells me, "Hey, eat these beans and you're going to have a good year," I had two helping. So you know, it, it was good. Uh, funny things like that, you know, just really uh, funny stories like that, where you know, I, I think probably my best memory with uh, Coach Herzl was we we went to the 1984 ACC tournament in Greensboro and we beat Duke for the tournament championship, lefties only ACC tournament championship. I was the trainer, but the funny part about it was after the first game, we go back to the hotel. We feed the guys. They all go to bed. We, the coaches and myself, we have dinner. And middle of the meal, coach says, "Okay, tomorrow we're all wearing the same outfits." <laughs> A little bit of superstition—that's okay. Next day we win. Same routine. Sitting down for dinner. All right, we're all wearing the same outfits. You know, by, by the time we won the, by the time we won the tournament. Like we all threw our clothes away. They were old and stale. But to see see him win that and to see uh, the great players that we had on that team uh, was really very satisfying. And um, I think Coach was really happy that it was him and not Mike Shusevsky or Dean Smith.
3: (laughs) Well, speaking of some of those great players, we understand there's a terrific story that you have uh, about someone who's very close to this staff, uh, me in particular, my first cousin, Adrian Branch, who played at Maryland, apparently there's a story at NC State that we have to get you to share with us because our listening audience needs to hear this one.
1: I, I didn't know he was your cousin.
3: Yeah, uh, but my I'll first cousin.
1: You, I'll tell you this, uh, your aunt was one of my favorite – is one of my fe- favorite people. Uh, Carolyn is just wonderful.
3: You and talk about relentless, you know, you talk about stick-to-itiveness. Oh, uh, yeah. Carolyn has it all.
1: I tell you what, she, she is a wonderful person. So we go down to NC State and uh, we play them. We uh, get everybody all squared away. Coaches have the dinner. We get up the next morning. Coach is going to recruit. Our assistant coaches are going to recruit. I'm kind of left in charge. Time to get on the bus. Airplane. Got to get to the airport. Get everybody on the bus. Where's A.B.? Um, hey Ben where's A.B. I don't know hey Pete where's A.B. I don't know so now we're banging on the door now we're banging on the windows now we got 20 guys banging on the windows banging on the door Uh, amazing that nobody called the police Uh, we knew the guy who owned the hotel we got him he couldn't get the door open because A.B. had the you know super duper security lock on inside so we had to go we had to go. So I left this ticket with the hotel manager, and we all got to the airport. We flew back, and I got to College Park. No cell phones back then. I was in the office. Uh, Coach Giselle called and said, hey, did you all get back? You know, I'm still recruiting. I said, well, we got back. We all didn't get back. back.
0: <laughs>
1: What's that mean? I said, well, we, we had to leave A.B. back in uh, Raleigh because we couldn't get him woken up. That didn't go over too big, but uh, A.B. showed up a little bit later that night. <laughs> there was a lot of laughs. He, uh, he never heard the end of it. And as a matter of fact, when, uh, uh, when I was fortunate to be recognized at the math at the Hall of Fame dinner, and, and more appropriately, A.B. was the one who should really have been recognized, and he was. Before I went up for my speech, I leaned over and I said, hey, A.B., can I tell the story about Raleigh? Yeah, go ahead and tell it. everybody knows. <laughs> it. He's a good guy. I love that guy.
3: He's awesome.
1: He's what a, good a good guy. guy. He, got a, he has a great TV voice, too. His voice is awesome.
0: Coach, you've, you've been fortunate in, in, in your career. I, I can take you all the way back to high school and working for and working with a Hall of Fame coach in Morgan Wooten, And then we fast forward to Jim Calhoun and Gino Ariama. Give us, give, give us a little thought on, on the, the contrasting personalities with those coaches and how they went about getting to achieve the end goal, which is winning championships.
1: You, you know, the really interesting thing is, you know, I, I've never scored a point in a basketball game. I never coached a game. But I have been blessed to work with five Naismith Hall of Famers, uh, uh, Coach Wooten, Gary Williams, Jim Calhoun, Gino Oriyama, and Lefty Drizzell. Uh, you know, it, it's hard to imagine that, and they all did it a different way. They all did it a different way. Uh, you guys know Coach Wooten, uh, God rest his soul. Uh, he never said a curse word, never said a curse. I don't know if you ever heard him, I never heard him say no. a curse word from 1974 to when he just passed this year. But I tell you what, now he could get you a little sarcastic, and he he he, he knew. He knew – the great thing about Coach Wooten was he knew how to motivate each player individually. And I think you guys would probably agree with that. And no question. He, and he, Absolutely. He can, get, he can get sarcastic and, uh, you know, at halftime say something great like uh, – I won't say Ted Jeffries, but, hey, Ted, one rebound. Woof. Jeff were you in the locker room were you in the locker room for that game (laughs) (laughs) but but no it wasn't only you Ted it was everybody but you know what you know what if you double that in the second half you'll have two rebounds (laughs) you know (laughs) and and, and he never said it with a a curse word he never said it you know in a mean way but man when he said it to you, you you got the message right
3: Oh, it was it was full theatrics there, Jeff. You know, he had the stat sheet in his hand. He'd pull it up and he'd point to the stats. You know, read it up and down and let you know. You know, I said, look at it now. Look at this man, let, Ted. Now pay attention. If you come back out and do the same thing in the second half, you'll have two rebounds. That's two more <laughs> rebounds than a dead man. <laughs> oh yeah, he he'd leave you. He would leave you flat but then you would go out there and you finish the game with 15 rebounds and three guys are in the hospital from the opposing team. You just, <laughs> you just murdered those dudes.
1: So, so that that was my deal with him. I mean, I think he was so organized, so prepared. He had that practice plan down pat, right? I mean, it was to the minute. Uh, he knew how to motivate you before the game, after the game, particularly at halftime, Uh the best, the best coach I've ever worked with, flat out the best coach I've ever worked with, and um, uh, you know. So, who do you want to move on to? You move on to uh, Coach Calhoun. People ask me all the time, "What? What? If you had to say one thing about Coach Calhoun, what would you say?" I would say, "Will to win." We could be in the mm-hmm. tough. We could be in the toughest situation at the end of the first half or at the end of the game. He'd call timeout. He'd get them in there. He might have a couple, you know, words for them. And uh, – but he, he would convince them. He, could, he would convince them that we could go up at halftime or we could win the game in the last minute. And he was a master at that. He was an absolute master at that. Gino, people ask me about Gino or I am and say, hey, how do you describe him? I describe him one way, one word chemistry. He's all about chemistry. His whole deal is about his team, how they gel together, how they work together. We had a situation where we had one of the best prospects in the, um, in the area come for a recruiting visit, went through the whole visit. The, the, the person left team came in and said to coach Oriyama, it's not going to work. What do you mean it's not going to work? Not going to work. She's not going to fit in. He picked up the phone, called the young lady and said, we're not going to recruit you anymore. Wow. That person, that person ended up being an all-time leading scorer in her respective conference, but never won championships. Mm-hmm. About that? That's his deal. Um, Gary Williams, I love Gary Williams. Energy, 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 live wire, great guy, uh, great coach, uh, just, you know, works as hard as anybody. If you've ever been close to him after a game, he's soaked. (laughs) His suit is soaked. And um, he just did great things at Maryland. I I can't say enough about Gary. Uh, I love my alma mater. Uh, Damatha, I love my alma mater at the University of Maryland. And uh, Gary came back, got it back on track, took him to a national championship, and, and he's revered by everybody and he should. Uh, and, and then the, left, the last one is the left-hander. And, you know, I was just so thrilled. I know a lot of people at the Hall of Fame and a lot of people, you know, have friends at the Hall of Fame. You know, my biggest concern was that he would not get in Uh, before he passed Uh, and and he did get in and he's still alive and well and I'm glad that he got in because if any of you were there that night at the hall of fame induction he stole the show (laughs) stole the show so he gets up there he's at the podium they have to help him up he's up there and um He starts his talk. And at the other end of the room is a clock that's counting down. So he he has five minutes. So in the middle of the speech, he stops. He says, hey, like I'm 86 years old. What are you going to do to me? Turn off that clock. (laughs) And he went on for 10 more minutes. The place was hysterical. I mean, everybody was laughing. He was the hit of the night. And uh, the real sin of that would have been if he got that award afterwards. And uh, that was a special night for all of us to see him getting that after being passed over so many times. People don't understand. The bulk of his time of coaching was when one school won the tournament and they went to the NCAA tournament. You know, the field was 32 and then the field was 40. Well, now the field's 68. So the guys that have that went farther after him, like Coach Shashovsky and a lot of other coaches, who are great coaches, but they had more opportunities in the you know in the ACC. Now you see eight or nine schools go right. The best, the best, probably the best basketball game ever in ACC history was in <coughs> NC State and Maryland in a triple overtime, when David Thompson was the best player for NC State. McMillan and Elmore and Lucas were playing for Maryland triple overtime and uh, I think it was triple overtime and uh, NC state wins and they go on to win the national championship
2: and uh, Maryland goes to the NIT tournament. So I've been blessed to work with great coaches. Well, you took us through the eighties, nineties, 2000s, 2010s and have seen so many champions and great coaches. But when I think about the players in, in the situation of them saying, Hey, it's time that, that we get paid, as you said earlier, a lot of revenue is generated through the NCAA, and that's the, that's the name of the game. So at this point, uh, the word is that players are going to be able to m- make money off of their likeness. But should they be, pl- should they be paid when they commit uh, to a university beyond the scholarship what is a uh, what is your thought process on how players can receive more compensation? You know, Chris, it's a great question. It's a great question. Back in my day,
1: you know, if uh, if a player got a full scholarship, that was a big deal. You were going to school for four years free, scot free. That was a big deal. What's happened? I think is the whole notion of the scholarship. I don't think anybody even thinks about that anymore. You know, I I really don't think that they. Grasp, you know, depending on the school you go to, uh, if it's a private school, for example, that, that scholarship could be 300, three and a quarter, you know, over to four years. So, you, as you all know, a couple of years ago, they put in cost of attendance. So, that was a way to get more money into the students for them to take care of whatever needs they have, clothing or whatever. There's also a thing called a student-athlete ass- assistance fund, which is money from the NCAA, goes to the athletic department. You can disperse that to some of your student-athletes. That can help with clothes. That can help with a variety of different things. So they got that money. Now, as you talked about, it's name, image, and likeness. And what that really is all about, you know, the, the three of you, great athletes, great good looking guys you can go out and market yourself because you have something to sell me i can't go market myself because you know i don't play old gray hair whatever the case might be the fact of the matter is the nli nil excuse me name image and likeness that gives each student athlete the ability based on their marketability to go and try to do this. Now, it hasn't come to the finish line yet. It hasn't come to the finish line yet. Most recently, most recently you probably heard a couple athletic directors uh, at UNC, uh, at Duke, who are concerned about some aspects of it. I think what athletic directors and coaches are most concerned about, number one, I do think they want to provide additional resources via name image and likeness i think the tricky part comes in how do you control that in the recruiting process so if if i'm a donor and chris is coming to my school and he can have the ability to market himself via name image and likeness he's not even there and i cut a marketing deal with him now is that because of his marketability, or is that a recruiting inducement? So I think if you talk to most coaches, if you talk to most athletic directors, the thing that they're most worried about is not when the student's there, not when you three are there and you're playing, and the three of you might have a different degree of marketability, so have at it. It's the front end when is it gonna be a bidding war or recruiting inducements so that's it pay for play I'm not a pay-for-play person I, I'm not I, I really am not uh, I, th- I think at that point it's professional I, I think it's professional the other thing I don't think people think about okay if you're getting paid for play and Chris doesn't play good tonight can he get fired the next day can, hmm. can we bring somebody else in do you know you're going to pay taxes you know, all all those kind of things. But put that all aside. I don't think pay for play is good. That's just my own take. However, I would say this, I have nothing. I have no qualms about one and dones. Matter of fact, I'd rather see somebody go to school for a year or two, and then go if they want to go. If we can get a student athlete in school for a year or two, and they go play five, six, 10 years, we got a better chance of getting that student athlete to come back for year three and four and get their degree. Mm -hmm. Or or we all know how this goes, guys. Sometimes they go, and after two years, you know, they're done. You know, we've all seen the players that fizzle out. So um, I'm fine if they want to go one and done. I'm fine if they want to go on the new G League pathway. You guys have seen it. They paid. Uh, they, they just paid a high schooler uh, five hundred thousand dollars to play in the G League. Uh, we've had high schoolers go right to Europe to get to nineteen, so that they could come back and be within the draft, the draft age. You know, if, if that's what a student athlete wants to do, I'm okay with that. Um, but I would tell you this: you know, at UConn, we had a lot. Of, we had a number of guys that went. And, and what I will tell you about the guys that went at UConn and Coach Calhoun was great about this. He he sat with them. He did his homework with the GMs. He did his homework with the people like Marty Blake, who was the NBA scout. And he would tell them, "Hey, this isn't the year." He told Rip Hamilton was talking about going out his first year, or or a particular year. Coach Calhoun talked to him and said. Stay one more year. You need one more year. You need one more year. And he came back, he was a first-round draft choice and had a great career. By the way, you get a lot more exposure playing at Duke, Maryland, Carolina, UConn. You get a lot more exposure on TV, and you get a lot more media play than when you're in the G League or you're going overseas or something like that. And I'm not bagging the G League. I think it's a good thing. And I think it's a good pathway for a lot of people. But, you know, for some of these people, like Zion, I mean, Zion got a lot of marketability out of being on a lot of TV games
2: last year at Duke. And good for him. He earned it. So, Jeff, you brought up something very interesting earlier that I think a lot of the uh, people who say – hey, we want to see these college athletes uh, get paid for their play. They point to, let's say, the endorsement deals that you received at UConn. Can you ex- explain to us exactly where that money goes so that if someone's listening to this podcast, they understand exactly why the players aren't receiving this and where the money is going to, to know that it's going in, in, in a proper place?
1: Well, it's, it's going to su- at UConn, it was going to support – At UConn, we had basically three sports that generated revenue. Men's basketball, uh, one of the few schools that generated women's basketball revenue at that time. Now, there's many more that generate revenue because that sport has grown exponentially. And then football. So we had 24 sports. So those three sports were really underwriting 21 other sports. And, And that's where the money goes to. But also, Chris, you know, we're all realists. It also went to coaches. It also went to staffs. It also went to athletic directors. So, it, it, you know, it went around all the way around. But, you know, I, I still would say that uh, pay, pay for play is not the best, you know, thing. Uh, they have an option to go and chase that dream, and I hope they earn it and, and realize it. Um, But I I really think that, as you know, when you look at the stats, I think the last time I looked, 1.9% of college basketball players make it to the NBA. So quite frankly, the vast majority of all of our student athletes in all sports, you know, they're they're not going to make it to the NFL or the NBA or Major League Baseball. Some are, but that statistic's very low. That 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 discussion will be battled all the time, though, Chris. And and I, and, and, and I, let me tell you one. Let me say one other thing. I know that when a player walks by the bookstore and they see their number on a jersey that's being sold, I get why they're upset about that. I get that. Mm-hmm. I, I get that. So I think that's why you know some of these other methods of payment are come have come into play. And
2: are coming into bigger play, hopefully soon. That's a great point, and that's why someone with your expertise, we had to have you step to the mic and answer some of these uh, these hot questions out there. Uh, before we let you go, though, we know that you ran into uh, a very famous boxer. I know it's hard for you to get, you know, awestruck when you see somebody, but there's someone you have a connection to, right? Um, that when you saw them, you you got awestruck. Well
1: there's a family story behind it. I was in a diner over here in Crofton and um, was having breakfast and all of a sudden I saw this guy walk, walk in. And I said, that's either his body double or, or, or that's sugar Ray Leonard. And um, you know, I, I, I really, it's so uncomfortable. We all have a lot of friends that are professional athletes, right? And you go to, you're at a dinner with them or you're someplace with them and they, they just get hammered for autographs. Can I shake your hand? Can I get a photo? Can we do a selfie? You know, some of these guys just never get a break, right? And so I'm sitting there saying, oh man, how am I going to do this? Well, it was Sugar Ray Leonard and Sugar Ray Leonard went to Parkdale High School where my mother worked in the guidance office. And, and Sugar Ray was her student assistant. And um, they, they had a very, you know, they had a very close bond. And my mother passed uh, two years ago. And and when he came in and he sat down, I, I, I kind of, you know, walked over and said, hey, you know, I hate doing this, but I think there's something a little special. I, I think, you know, my mom, Mrs. Hathaway. And uh, he just got, uh, as I was telling you guys before, he just got up, big hug, sit down, let's talk. Uh, We ended up talking for about 15 minutes uh, because I wanted to get out of there because I was cutting in on his time with his brother. And uh, we we just had the best conversation and, you know, we got a pretty good picture. You know, a a picture of a good-looking, strong athlete and a 60-year-old gray-haired guy. (laughs)
2: jeff hathaway uh thank you for stepping to the mic we appreciate your time oh wait wait i didn't go down all your accolades at the beginning of this we kind of ran through it so uh jeff hathaway the guy who spent time as the chairman of the NCAA Men's Basketball Oversight Committee, as an athletic director at Hofstra, UConn, and also at Colorado State. Thank you for taking some of your time and spending it with us. We appreciate you.
1: Well, let me say this. All those accolades are because of great student-athletes, great coaches, and great staff. My pleasure to be with you all. Thanks for having me.